Hi, this is the UX Growth Podcast, a podcast that helps people learn and grow in the UX design industry. I'm your host, Nick Mann. I'm here with another guest of season one with Irina Gheorghe, UX designer focused on process optimization using a transdisciplinary approach that combines strategic UX fundamentals with years of experience in multimedia and sales and support. Thank you for being here, Irina. Thank you for the invite, Nick. And wow, what a mouthful. <laughs> My description sounds Yeah, absolutely. But hey, it, would you not say that is an accurate representation of everything you do, though? Yeah. Yeah. If, if it's to narrow everything down, I, I would say yes, it's a very accurate representation. Yeah, absolutely. So, man, let's dive right into that by tell us a bit about your background and how'd you get to the place you are today? Sure. Um, so I started in sales and support and I was, yeah, in that field for a long time. And then I realized that I was simply reacting to people's problems. I worked a lot with digital products and I, it just got to a point where I was frustrated that I can't do more for people. And I decided that I would love to get into a field to be a little more proactive about it. This was early 2000s. Yeah, uh, early, late 2000s when UX was not that popular. Um, I'm originally from Romania, so it started becoming more popular after 2015-ish, something like this. And uh, yeah, it was something that I've never heard for, uh, for heard about. So um, I started going to a bachelor program for, for film, where I focused mostly on the multimedia part, working with digital and uh, content writing. This is what triggered my interest. It, it's a completely different field from, from, from sales. It's more creative, but it was something that really drawn, uh, was drawn, I was drawn to it. And um, life happened and I relocated to Denmark. And a friend of mine introduced me to a possible internship in UX design. And it was something completely out of this world reading the job description and I was like why have I not heard of this before what is this I need to learn more so I just dived into it and I went back to school at the tender age of 31 years old um, to do my second bachelor um, I've done a academic program in multimedia design where I specialize as a UX designer and then I continued the education as a digital concept development uh, specialist. So now I'm. I also have a professional bachelor in that field. So the last four years of my life have been consumed by UX, and consumed is the proper term because it is. I have immersed myself in it. It was you know, finding this was something such of a, a wow moment because I I finally found a thing that I was really good at and the thing that my brain was wired for. I've always questioned the way things work. And I've always tried to optimize processes, even tiny things in the home, like um, I'm going to put my water glasses in the cabinet that's above the sink because that's what the glasses are used for, like at that level. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I've completed my education and I've had a couple of internships um, focused on UX in a creative agency and another one on UI in a in-house for a software um, development company and uh, now I'm just coming off of my maternity leave and I'm back on the prowl for a job in UX and I have some interviews I'm actually working on a case now for for a company and it's it's, 
something exciting to work with. Ooh. So we'll see how that uh, how that works out. Hey, I hope that works out too. That sounds really exciting. I know that's always yeah. what I love to hear is about how we are able to practice and learn for ourselves and be able to get to the careers that we want. And it feels like, you know, it is all possible. We just have to be able to put our best forward uh, best foot forward and be able to learn as much as we can absolutely and you never stop learning really it's oh, you yes. do it without noticing but if you're actually aware of it then it's just it's a pleasure for me anyway to just learn new things yeah absolutely i know like i know a lot of people when they graduate from school they think like oh the education stops but the learning doesn't you know it's no like, wow especially with the UX field, because it's always changing. It's such a new and young career that no one even really knows it all. You know, it's like when you try to even ask people, what is UX design? You're always probably going to get a lot of different answers from a lot of different designers. I mean, I think that's expected because the industry itself isn't sure what it's about. <laughs> if you search for, I don't know, 20 job titles that all have the UX designer, uh, title, you're going to look through and you're going to see that they're, the, the, the description and the, the tests you're supposed to work with are so varied. And some are, sure, more UI focused. Some can even be user research, 100% testing or just uh, wireframing or working with information architecture. So it's, it's a little bit all over the place right now, which is nice, I think, because we get to, yeah. to dictate it. Yeah, and you can be able to find the kind of job that you want because there's so many different variables. It's not like this is how it's going to be and this is how it always will be. So like we are able to not only like adapt to a lot of different situations, but we are able to find places that we can say that, hey, this is what I excel in and this is where I can find my career path in and be able to do the best work possible. Absolutely. And I think it's one of those fields in which People are actually encouraged to have those ooh, shiny moments where they're like, no, today I'm bored of this. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to start working on this part of the <laughs> of the industry, which, yeah, which is that's, very nice. That's how I feel like with a lot of the agency settings where it's like, it's a jungle every day. That's how I always looked at it because that's where like routines typically don't happen because there's always something happening that replaces what you would expect. So it's like, you always have to go into those work environments with an open mind and a can do attitude, because a lot of times it's not about whether I can, or can't do it. It's when can I get this done? <laughs> yes. Yesterday, preferably. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, the stories I have about that. <laughs> yep. I think it's a pain point for everybody. Uh, absolutely. I think it's also just because like, because there's a lot of uncertainties that there's a lot of unknown things like, my gosh, I really don't want to like overpromise anything. I always, mm -hmm. I actually always underpromise. That's a good strategy, isn't it? Then, then you get to wow people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's how I found out, but also like, man, I wonder if some things are just super uncertain and like, I don't want to make a promise I cannot keep. It always, yeah, I know like it's always going to make me feel bad. Mm -hmm. yeah so also Irina so when you're going through uh, I know like when we go through the agency there's no there's no real typical work week looking like that because of the these agency settings but I kind of like to know what is some of the general processes that you use for a lot of your projects well it depends a lot on the project and the context of the project 
Mm-hmm, I think uh, one of the things we learned very early on is that there is no one, you know, process to rule them all kind of thing in UX. It, mm-hmm. it depends <laughs> on the context. Um, we've worked on uh, creating some apps for teenagers in South Korea, which was very interesting. That was actually my, my thesis project. And um, I was in charge of coming up with the process as well. So we started with getting an idea of what South Korean culture is like because we're in Denmark and we're like a completely different part of the world. Um, so we had to get familiar with uh, what are standard practices there. What uh, does a typical day in our target audience's life looks like? Uh, what are teenagers actually wanting to get out of uh, out of this app? It was a orienteering app, so outdoor activities, and uh, just getting to talk to some people and understand the culture was was a challenge in its own. And then it was so rewarding at the end to actually do some A-B testing and get the feedback that it actually looks like something that was designed locally. And it was just, ha, ah. um, it unfortunately never got to, got into the development stage. It's on hold for now, but it was, it was still a nice experience. And um, yeah, I think a typical process if I could call it that, would start with some sort of what I like to call a pre-analysis phase, where you get together with stakeholders and align some expectations because you create solutions for other people, mm-hmm. but you also need to have your own, uh, you bring your own professional background to it and all the knowledge that you have. And what I've learned is you go into a project thinking, okay, I'm going to solve this problem. And then you start doing the research and realize, wait, there's a bigger problem or a more impactful problem that can be solved instead. And this will, by uh, default, solve the problem we went into as well. So yeah. research does a lot. It's, it's a big part of the process. And I like to believe that I'm never the user. So even if it's something that I've worked with before and I know how it's supposed to uh, function according to standard practices, it's, I tend to not, I, I try to be as subjective, uh, as objective as possible and pretend I have no idea how it works. And I enter every research phase with the childlike curiosity trying to understand the context of the people who are going to use it. And mm-hmm. yeah, then typically we would have a workshop to bring together all of the research findings um, and brainstorm from there, try not to limit ourselves uh, creatively and try to come up with as many solutions as possible and then do some sort of prioritization based on business needs or budget constraints or time constraints and just decide what we're, we're trying to work on. And then we're going back a little bit more into research to try to figure out the best way of creating said features um, that we brainstormed upon. And then some sort of wireframe, a little bit of testing there to just make sure that the information architecture is on point, that the flows are on point and everything Mm -hmm. is working as it's supposed to work. And then comes the whole visual identity part where we have a, a design brief and we 
give life to the mockups, to the wireframes, into transforming them into mockups, and then a prototype at the end where we get some feedback from users, but also the stakeholders. So that that's a pretty much, yeah, a, a standard, if I can call it that, approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. It's like there's only like so much of like there's a lot of nuanced things that you can always say, but there's, you know, how it feels, how much uh, you can say in a general scope and a way that mm -hmm. sounds applicable and like something can learn from. I, I totally get, I totally get how difficult it can be to talk in such a general sense when UX design is always such specific problem solving. Yep. yep. And it's so it's, dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no, there's no one size fits all, you know, you can't use a, a hammer for like every single, uh, you know, problem all of a sudden you're gonna be like running into problems or things are gonna be a lot more slower than they has to be mm -hmm. and i think even if you have some tools that you keep using over and over and say personas they're such a staple um you don't use them identically the same t every time sometimes maybe you want to focus more on the technology or sometimes maybe you want to focus on the mental models that the users have or on their yeah preferences or lifestyles depending on what the business goals are for that uh, product that you're trying to build, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in the product process of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, Irina, uh, one of the things that a lot of people can have a struggle when they try to get into UX design is working on their portfolio. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds like a good topic, Dan. It is, yeah. Um, I've been I'm involved with the mentorship for for multimedia students, and this is the number one pain point that everybody has. And it was interesting because I got to rework a little bit on my portfolio as well, and it's it it was a little saddening to see that things haven't really changed over the years. Um, I personally think portfolios are redundant, but I can see why people still use them. The problem is you get so much mixed feedback um, about how they should be. And there is so much advice out there about writing the perfect study. Um, and a lot of it uh, says that you should probably be very on point and you shouldn't go into too many details. And then if you ask somebody else, they're going to say the complete opposite. And they said, I want to see everything. I want to see every single thought process you had described on there. And I think it's always a struggle, especially for, for juniors who are just trying to get a, a foot in and are so eager to show what they can do. And I, of course, if you worked on something and it's, it's, it's your baby, right? You put your passion into it. Of course, you want to shout it from the rooftops and you want to put everything out there and show people just exactly how much depth you have in your work and it feels a little heartbreaking if you have to oversimplify everything that you did and i think this is at least in denmark uh the trend for recruiters to try to oversimplify everything because they're in a time crunch and they don't have time to look at 100 portfolios in a week which i understand but i think it's probably not a problem with the portfolio it's a problem with the recruiting process but that's a different discussion yeah, uh, yeah, I totally get what you mean. And it can just definitely feel overwhelming just because that there really is no real way to actually have a good portfolio because everyone has a different opinion on it. 
Yes, and it's, it's never a... truly done. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, perfection does not exist. I think a lot of people either find out the hard way of this going absolutely mm -hmm. mad and finding out like all oh, because you know I I've talked about perfectionism quite a bit uh, and really. What I always want to say is the world does not uh, reward perfectionism because everyone has a different definition of it. Absolutely. I'm a, as a recovering perfectionist myself, I, uh, I agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it that we just need to understand is a lot of times is getting it done is better than getting mm -hmm. it perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you it's, can always refine it later. Absolutely. And the more you work with it, the more, I think, the more relaxed you become around it. That being said, I still have some case studies that I need to add to my portfolio. Uh, I know. And so, yeah, when you have like multiple case studies and sometimes it's hard to choose which one and you don't want to be too overwhelming with so many. It's like a mm -hmm. lot of problems like within that too, as well as like, is it the kind of case that you want to showcase that to you, of the kind of work you want to do as well? Because a lot of people only showcase the work they have done, but they don't really think about showing the work that they want to be doing and how the portfolio should be a reflection of that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I can understand that people are encouraging uh, candidates to have different CVs for different jobs. So you write your CV using the keywords from the job ad. Sure, I get that. But it's gotten to a point where people are saying, do that to your portfolio as well. So create case studies specifically for a job, which if it's your dream job, sure, it's worth the investment. But if, if you're just trying to get your foot in, trying to do anything, realistically, I don't think students have time to create custom-made case studies for insert company name here. So it's a little unrealistic this type of advice that's out there mm -hmm. yeah like when i first started on the portfolio i mean it took me weeks upon weeks and not even all the cases i made initially made it on there so i could kind of it does feel bad like there's to spend a lot of time on something that's not going to be shown but at the same time there's also a, there's a learning lesson throughout all of it too because i'm you know you sh every problem is different so like once you have the experience of be being able to deal uh deal with so many problems then when these problems can reappear in different ways you can say hey i have an idea of how to handle this project mm -hmm. absolutely and just uh, we we touched a little bit earlier that ux is such a dynamic and fast growing field it's the same with the designers if they want to keep up with the trends and a case study that you worked on this year maybe you've learned so much more in the next year that it's probably not your best work and it's probably you've probably worked on something more exciting or something that showcases your skills a lot more and then it's time to scrap that whole case study and just add a new one in so you're never done yeah yeah and yeah i always like to you know how life is like it's a river it's just always moving forward it never there is just no stopping moment because that's how time works and I think a lot of times, like we need to see our work like that as well. How there is just, there's always something that's going to be coming. And like a new yeah. opportunity, a new idea, you know, the time to be able to work on a project. It's, 
I think like with a lot of new students going into UX design can just take a deep breath and just be in the present moment about how they are associating their work and how to not be like emotionally attached to it because it, everything is just constantly changing. Oh, absolutely. You are not your design. I think that's that's a big lesson to learn. And if you can learn that, then you're going to be so much more open to criticism and you're going to embrace people coming to you and shredding your design to pieces because that's how you learn, even though it's unpleasant and uncomfortable. Yeah, and if it's unpleasant and uncomfortable, I would say that you are heading the right direction. Yes, it's worth it. If, if it feels hard, then it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I know. It's like when you hear the phrase easy come, easy go, like it feels so true. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, also, Arena, what would you say is the biggest lesson you have learned in your career so far? Oh, pick one. <laughs> um, well, let's see. This week, it would be, um, I think one of the big things is Right, we we touched a little bit on earlier uh, about uh, you know you're not your design. I think this comes, uh, this realization comes with uh, a detachment of you from your work, and this come this brings you uh, confidence in a way because if people are analyzing your design, it it says nothing about you as a person, and if you have this confidence, it means that you're more open to taking risks maybe with your designs and learning new things. And I think if you're a traditionalist where you learn a method and you're gonna plan on using that method in the same way throughout your career, maybe UX isn't the place for you because it is changing so fast and it's, you gotta keep with the times, <laughs> so to speak. Um, I think that this, this is, something that I struggled with a lot in the beginning because it brings um, uncertainty of change and change is hard for a lot of people and it's scary and it's uncomfortable but once you get used to it it just brings so much more opportunity your way and mm -hmm. if juniors could have this openness of opportunity I think it's so freeing and it really allows you to just explore what you can really do and allow yourself to impress yourself with what you can do. Yeah. I know if there was like one of the biggest things I've learned, the difference between uh, junior and senior level designers is senior level, uh, senior level designers love taking risks. Hmm. Interesting. That, that, that is one, one difference that I haven't heard before. Yeah, it, it, I know. It, it makes sense. I know. Yeah. It makes a lot. I think it makes a lot of sense because these are the people that they want to challenge themselves the most. Mm -hmm. And I think they're, uh, and they cannot be scared of feeling like they can fail. Hmm. So that's, that's one thing yeah. I've noticed with a lot of the senior levels. That's actually a very good point. I had a, a few years ago, I had a period where I was uh, meeting people in mid pandemic uh, for virtual coffee meetings and I talked with a lot of designers from all different levels from juniors from mid-level and seniors and some managers as well uh, just trying to get a feel of the industry and what their expectations are for people breaking into the field and this this about risk actually didn't come up uh, it's interesting people were focused more on you know being open-minded and learning new things and 
of accepting criticism and yeah, just trying things, but never the risk. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's like when you hear risk, you always feel like, hmm, this, ooh, that's, there might be a setback to this, but a lot of times they say like the setbacks are just uh, these mental blocks that we put ourselves because we're scared of failures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very you have to do a lot of reframing because you know I think it, in many cultures failure is equals you're bad and you shouldn't do that and we should avoid it at all costs. But it's just you're trying something and if it doesn't work out, then you have eliminated a way of doing something which opens you to other ways of solving a problem, for example. So it's basically a process of elimination. That's how I like to look at it. Yep. Yep. I always look at it. It is a, definitely a part of the process and is not something to be feared about just because everyone encounters it and that's how we get, we get better. And so I, to avoid that is to avoid your best self, I would say. True. And then you have the whole uh, imposter syndrome that's popping up with a lot of people working in oh design. My gosh. I I have not I have not yet met a designer that didn't deal with imposter syndrome at least once in their career. No, it, it kind of gets you to think is maybe UX such a um, a field where you're opening up all your vulnerabilities because you invest so much in your design and then you just put it out there for people to judge. Maybe that's the process behind the thought process. Yeah, I think there's definitely that because a lot of people aren't used to having like when we are learning UX design, we're usually getting critiques like on one-on-one -on -one settings or just a group setting, but like never in a thousands or millions of people settings. True. So I think there definitely is that that's that can be a shock to a lot of people because we're just not used to it at all because we we've never been in an environment like that. Also, I think it's because there's so much to learn and do. I feel like a lot of people just have this feeling that I don't know everything and I have to pretend I do. So they feel like they are, have to try to justify themselves that they can do the job because it's, oh. it's because it's such a big field. There's so much that you got to do and different experiences. So it's like, am I doing a good enough job? And I think there's a lot of that that happens in, the, in a lot of people's back in their minds. Absolutely. And that, that is a very good point there. There's there's a definitely another need for a reframe here to instead of oh my god look at all the things I need to learn I'm never gonna be good at anything any of these all of these then just focus on hey I'm really good at making wireframes or I'm really good at making user flows and just keep doing that and become better at it and then slowly slowly when you're done and feeling comfortable with it you can dip your toes into the next thing that you want to learn so baby steps yeah uh, yeah <laughs> absolutely. So as we're drawing close to this episode, what's the best way to reach out to you and be able to present any opportunities your way, Irina? No, thank you. Uh, well, uh, I have an Instagram page. It's called uh, at UX with Irina. And it's where I was very active before my maternity leave, but I plan on coming back. It's where I post um, advice and tools and methodologies for, for junior UXers. And uh, it's things that come up in my mentorship sessions. So you can find me on LinkedIn, it's Irina Gerge, or you can find me on at UX with Irina. Okay, and those links can be found in the show notes, so you can easily check out what Irina's doing and be able to support her. Cool, I hope I get some messages.
I'm always <laughs> up for a chat. <laughs> yes. Uh, be um, before we depart, any closing words you'd like our audience to know about? Yes. If you're a junior, don't be afraid to get out there and try new things and be open to criticism because it will help you grow as uncomfortable as it may be. Yep, absolutely. It's something that's the where the growth happens. Yep. Mm -hmm. Always in the in the uncomfortable zone. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Arena, for being here. Thank you for having me, Nick. All right. Please do support our guests. Until then, you just listen to the UX Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Mann. Thank you for listening. <laughs>